Okay. Welcome to Sunday's show. This is Progressive News Network with me, Janine Moloff, producer and host. We have a couple of really interesting stories this week. We have a very special interview from a friend of PNN with Rick Stizak, our uh, creator and a executive producer. So, and I'm looking for it right now. Don't you just love it when, oh, here it is, when you need new glasses. <laughs> okay, so we have a couple. Let me kind of backtrack a little here. Again, welcome to the Sunday show of Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. Um, again, my name is Janine Moloff. I am the producer and host. Our executive producer and creator is Rick Spizak, who is visiting us with, again, a special interview. Um, we're dealing today with, I, I titled it Environmental Racism, uh, but it's, it's more than that. It's environmental racism. It's uh, basically environmental battles, not only against people and communities of colors, color, but also uh, corporate battles against low-income communities, those that just don't have the green, the, to borrow a phrase, they don't have the Benjamins to fight in court effectively. Uh, but there's one such case that did do just that, and that's the case of uh, attorney Stephen Donzinger, which is going to be our second story here. But first, our executive producer and creator, Rick Spizak, he interviewed longtime advocate Jeannie Economos, and I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, She's with the Farm Workers Association in Florida. Now, Economos explained how little policies have changed between the Trump and Biden administrations. The issue of environmental racism and increased racism in general under Governor DeSantis in Florida is also discussed, and that's our first story. As I said a few minutes ago, because again, this show is live, all right? If we make a hiccup or a mistake, it's right there for everyone to hear. So uh, our second story is, is a story I did, and I'm going to discuss the recent release of imprisoned environmental attorney Stephen Donzinger, and he was held for 930, I'm sorry, 993 days of home detention with an ankle monitor, which frankly should have never happened. It was, it was an illegitimate imprisonment, actually. And he was, uh, he was sentenced to home detention by what I consider to be a couple of ethically compromised federal judges. Now, what's the deal with Donzinger? Well, Donzinger basically filed a lawsuit against fossil fuel giant. At the beginning, it was, it was Texaco. And then Chevron bought Texaco in a one. So when Chevron bought Texaco, they inherited their liabilities as well. So, Donziger sued Chevron for the indigenous peoples of the Ecuadorian Amazon. And Donziger won. He won a $9.5 billion, with a B, billion-dollar lawsuit settlement against Chevron for what can only be called their premeditated dumping and pollution of the Amazon rainforest. Chevron then, in turn, used their army of corporate attorneys to totally destroy Donziger. To go after him, Stephen Donziger wound up being disbarred, even though he did nothing wrong. He was imprisoned in his own home and in a federal um, federal prison as well. Um, and Chevron never paid a cent to the damage they did. And that's our second story. And then finally, we're going to have my, you know, 
It's a feature I really enjoy because I, I admit I have a, a very perverse sense of humor. And that's our Jackass of the Week Award. We have a very special jackass that deserves that award this week. So with that and no further ado, we will go into our first story, the um, interview with Jeannie Economos with the Farm Workers Association of Florida uh, being interviewed by Rick Spizak. And here we go. Recording in progress. Yes, I'm, I'm of course, going to record this for the interview. Okay. okay. I'm getting, getting an, an echo. echo. You're getting an echo. Did, did you pay extra for that? Okay. Uh, I'm going to stop here for a second here. I apologize to our listeners. Uh, you know, what can I say? Technology is wonderful. Apparently, and I didn't have time to listen to it, apparently there is, some background to Rick's interview. And honestly, I'm just going to play it, and I apologize to Ms. Economos as well, because I just don't have the technical setup to actually, you know, mask it with music or whatever. So um, let's see now. I'm going to just go ahead with this. Recording in progress. Yes, I'm, I'm of course, going to record this for the interview. Okay. Okay. I'm getting, getting an, an echo. echo. You're getting an echo. Did, did you pay extra for that? Uh, no. no. <laughs> I wonder okay. what. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me put my headphones on, and hopefully that'll that'll okay. get rid of it. Let me, let me try, try my headphones. headphones. Okay. Apparently, we have some technical issues here. What can I say? This again, this is a live broadcast, and uh, mistakes. Well, you know, things happen. Can you hear me? No, I can hear you. Okay. Oh, I'm still Hold on. Let's try it now. Okay. Let's see what happens. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. And the echo is gone. Yes. Um. Yeah, it's gone. Okay. Good. Okay. Oh. Alrighty. Okay. Great. Well, that's good to know. Uh, do you have a uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to know a, a human being who has been working on human rights issues, on farmers' rights issues, farm workers' rights issues for a long decades and decades. Uh, and I have the good fortune to have her with me today, Jeannie Economos of the Farm Worker Association of Florida. Um, there's so many ongoing issues from the air quality when they just casually burn and pollute like mad to so many other issues. I understand you have an event coming up. Jeannie, let us know what we need to know about this event. How can we help? How can we support you? Well, May 1st is International Workers' Day around the world. And, um, and for many countries around the world, it is their Labor Day. And so we have celebrated May 1st and Workers' Day for, for many, many years. In 2006, we had one of the biggest rallies ever in Orlando with 20,000 people um, around immigrants' rights and worker rights. And um, this year, as everyone knows, um, our communities have been under attack in so many ways, nationally, but also in Florida. And um, so we are organizing an event um, in downtown Orlando on May 1st, Sunday. Our office in Homestead is also organizing an event in Miami, so there's two events going on on Excellent, May 1st. excellent. 
and um, and it's uh, we're working with um, a couple of unions and other grassroots groups in the community, and we just got done with the meeting, and we're very excited about this event on May 1st to raise up worker rights, immigrant rights, farm worker rights, LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, uh, disabled rights, all our rights are being under attack right now. And we're speaking out. We're not standing for it. We're speaking out, coming together in unity and solidarity to make a difference. That's, that's wonderful. Doing the good work that you have for so, so, so long. Um, I, I have to ask, I, I know there's been some, uh, some concern raised uh, that uh, the burnings continue. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak to about to that a little bit. Well, the sugarcane burning is still continuing in South Florida. Um, it's really horrible. Um, it's a long story in itself, but when the sugarcane um, burns, um, they, they burn the sugarcane off um, to um, help the plants, um, supposedly to help the plants. But um, the low-income black communities, black and brown communities, mostly Haitian, Hispanic, and African-American, get the smoke from the sugarcane burning and it's really criminal because when the winds are blowing towards the rich people's areas on the coast and towards palm beach they don't burn but when the wind the other direction towards the poor people and the people of colors communities then they allow the burning and there's lots of incidents of asthma respiratory problems and they've been fighting that for many 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 years and um Sierra Club is really involved with them as well, and um, there are better methods to do um, the, in, in place of sugarcane burning to do mulching, but so far, our great corporations in Florida are still allowed to burn, even though it causes harm to the most vulnerable people. I would ask, gee, is there no environmental enforcement? But then again, I would probably know the answer that there is none. Exactly. And actually, I'll just put a little plug in. We worked with... Um, Center for Biological Diversity and Dr. Nathan Donnelly. And on the 19th of April, it came out with a report on um, showing the um, environmental justice issues related to pesticides. And it's a it's an excellent report. It was just published in BMC uh, publication. It's a, 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 a journal, um, an academic journal. And it makes the case for the first time in a very, very comprehensive way that pesticides from the beginning of fossil fuel um, extraction to production of fossil fuel in brown and black communities to the use of those pesticides on fields where farm workers are the most exposed. Um, And it makes the case that this is an environmental justice issue, but it has all kinds of citations and history um, that it can be used as a really good advocacy tool because this administration at least is giving lip service to environmental and climate justice. So we're going to hold them accountable to it. And this report that just came out, um, I can put it, um, I can share it with you. Please do. Please do. Send me the link. Your listeners. So, that, yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned that this, this current administration, and while it must be said they're not Trump, that must be said, it also must be said that they are continuing Trumpian policies, that, that the changes we hope to see on the border, we cha- we, the changes we hope to see in immigration policies haven't occurred. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Well, one of the biggest disappointments for us was the issue of the Haitians, the something like 14, 15,000 Haitians at the U.S.-Mexico border. And the way the Haitians were treated was just horrendous. We have a Haitian community in Florida and in Apopka, and a lot of them are farm workers. We used to have Haitian people on our staff, and we have Haitian community members and members of our organization. And we were just appalled, outraged, and sickened by the way the Haitian um, immigrants and migrants were treated, especially when you know their long history of how they left Haiti. Some of them had to live in Chile and their long journeys through South America, through Central America to get to the border, just to have hope of having a better life and some kind of uh, work and um, stability in the United States. And they were treated worse than other immigrants and it was just criminal. We did work with some groups locally to try and help find some um, housing and temporary housing and um, assistance for a few families here in Central Florida, but the issue was massive and um, it was just heartbreaking. And that, honestly, to be honest, and I hate to say it, but that really soured me on this administration. And since then, things have not gotten a whole lot better. Well, you're obviously uh, have been in discussion with people about these issues. Is there, is there any reason to have hope that there's going to be a little sanity and humanity uh, in policies that, that people are faced with? Obviously, we know the Republicans are going to make all the hay they possibly can about the invasion of, of, of foreigners, of aliens, but is there any reason to hope that this administration is going to turn some kind of corner? Well, the one thing that does give me some hope, I am very disappointed in the immigration policy, continuing a lot of the Trump administration immigration policy, and on some other fronts. The one thing that does give me hope, and again, we're hoping, we're making sure that this isn't just lip service, but this is the first administration since the Clinton administration that has really put an emphasis on environmental and climate justice, or better terms, environmental and climate racism. Um, so uh, you might know that the um, administration formed what's called the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. I heard that, yeah. And there are some awesome, dynamic, incredible activists on that White House Council. Wow. And uh, we know some of them, and they are dynamite. And if they, if anybody could do anything with this administration, they're the ones to do it. So um, they're actually going to have a call, a public a meeting with WeJack coming up. Um, I think it's next week or the week after. Um, so one place I do have some hope is on health and safety. Um, OSHA is um, in the process of looking at developing finally heat stress standards. Uh, um, maybe a few years late, but better late than never. Sure. So we're, we're being really engaged with OSHA on trying to get heat stress standards. We've been meeting with EPA very frequently. Really? Um, yes. And um, again, I, I, I don't want to get too optimistic, but um, at least there's some signs that there's some folks at EPA that realize that they need to do better. Maybe they got shocked at how bad the Trump administration was. We've had quite a few meetings with EPA recently. Um, some good news is that the really horrible pesticide co called chlorpyrifos, and people might know it by Lorsban or Dursban, 
We've been fighting against that for only 20 years. And finally, as of last month, there will be no more use of chlorpyrifos on food products. The EPA finally banned the use of chlorpyrifos on food products. Now, it can still be used in other kinds of agricultural products, unfortunately, which still affects farm workers. But farm workers that work in food crops and people that eat food um, can rest a little bit easier that at least chlorpyrifos is gone. Um, I'll put in another one plug. There's a, a, a bill out there called the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, or PACPA. And we fully support that because it would ban organophosphate and carbamate and neonic pesticides. So people can look that up. That's great. That's good to hear. Now, obviously, there's little positive coming out of the, uh, the governor's office and the state, uh, state offices. Um, is, there, is there any, I'm sure there's some ongoing meetings. Are they going to address, do you anticipate them addressing any issues? Uh, based on this action you've got coming up? Oh, they're addressing issues, but all in the wrong way. Um, no, we don't have much hope at all from this administration. If anything, it's been extremely ugly. Um, I'm sure folks have heard about all the voting rights, overturning a lot of voting rights. And the election police. And the election police and the don't say gay bill and the anti-immigrant bill where um, local um, law enforcement have to partner with ICE, um, the 287G program, the anti-sanctuary city bill. It's very ugly. I'll give you, I'll let you know about uh, two months ago now, we had an incident here in um, our area in the Apopka, Orlando area. Um, well, there, uh, there's a thing called H-2A workers, and they right. are workers that come here on work visas. So right. when people that come from other countries, they are here legally on work visas for a certain period of time. Well, a local grower uh, nursery um, had a bunch, had about 80 workers that were H-2A workers, and he moved them to a hotel where there were better accommodations in a town called Maitland, which is a bedroom community of Orlando. Well, the local people saw buses full of dark-skinned Hispanic males, and this whole thing blew up, and it was all over the news media, and the local people were saying, Send all, Biden is sending us all their horrible um, immigrants that are illegal, and they're rapists and criminals, and and um, it went all over Twitter, and local elected officials were tweeting about how we have to send these people back and how we want them out of our neighborhoods and how they're illegal. And it was really embarrassing for them when they found out that all these people were here legally. So we had a big press conference here. And the sad thing is that these are young men that come from their home countries legally to work because they can't make enough money in their home countries. You know, and for them to be treated like that is absolutely horrible. One would think that given the crises of international shipping, the disaster that many of us anticipated of this uh, uh, short-term, buy-quick, you know, depend on international shipping, that's, that's not working. And you would think that agriculture that is U.S.-based would, would get some support so that 
you know, when when shipments from Mexico or or, uh, or Chile or South America, are, when they're having problems with shipping, that homegrown foodstuffs would be supported. Well, it just shows the ignorance of the American public. And it just shows that this is not about anything based in reality. It's about a radical ideology. And let's say it like it is. It's about racism. And it's about white supremacy and people not wanting people that look different, that are of a different skin tone, different skin color. They don't want them in their community. And unfortunately, instead of getting better, like we should be getting better, peace, love, and harmony, um, we are spewing these conspiracy theories, these anti-immigrant, anti-other, anti-people of color uh, attitudes, and it's really heartbreaking because um, I was there when they had the George Floyd protest in Orlando, and it was so beautiful because it was so, it was a rainbow of colors of people and young people that were really in solidarity with each other and didn't care about race, didn't care about gender. They really were there together. And it was, I felt a real hope that things were going in the right direction. And then we have things like this and this governor doing these horrible things. And it's really, um, it, 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 on, on the one hand, it can make someone discouraged and think that, oh, you know, things are so bad, I just want to give up. But this, this is the time. This is the time more than ever not to give up because that's what they want us to do. They want us to give up. So if there's any time to fight, any time to believe, any time to keep going, this is the time to do it because otherwise they win. That's just right. by having defeated you more uh, you know, emotionally, morally, um, by giving up to their horrible hatred and ugly rhetoric. So on we go. You know, some of us have been talking about this and agitating for this for over half a century. And and to see this backsliding, uh, you know, it's it's tough. It's real tough. But as you say, we don't have the option of giving up. Well, it really is incomprehensible. Like you, I'm, 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 I'm putting close to 70, and so I was there before we had Roe versus Wade, and uh, the struggle that it took to get Roe v. Wade, and to see that um, it's being eroded now and possibly overturned, especially when Latin American countries are, you know, um, passing laws that are, um, you know, uh, pro-choice. It's just mind-boggling to me that our country is slipping into what seems like the Dark Ages. But that's why, again, there were people in the Dark Ages in the past that held a candle and kept that candle burning throughout the Dark Ages until the candle could be a bigger light again. And that's what we have to do. We have to all be holding that candle through this darkness until we get past it. I went to a ACLU national meeting in, I think, 2006. And one of the guest speakers was Antonin Scalia. Oh. And <laughs> it was, it was uh, what's a good way to put it? It was a uh, very, very uh, powerful, uh, sobering meeting. And he made a comment at the end that sent a shiver through this entire, you know, thousand plus room. 
he said, well, if we can get three more justices, you better watch out because things are going to change. And sadly, that's what we have. Yeah, and that's what I think is scariest of all. Yeah, I have a friend who passed away about a year ago, and uh, we've did we've been activists together for 30 years, and she used to always say, "It's all about the Supreme Court. It's all about the Supreme Court." And I wish she were here now, or maybe I'm maybe she's in a better place now. Um, but absolutely, um, our Supreme Court that was our holdout to try and help us keep our rights. Um, so we're in very scary times, and I think, you know, it's. I, I have friends that, um, you know, are white middle class folks, um, and sometimes they don't get it because they say, yeah, things are really bad, but they don't see what I see, because they, a lot of it is, they understand that voting rights are bad and anti-immigrant rhetoric is bad, but when you see it in the real people every day. And what it does to people every single day. Um, you know, we have people who are, if they had access to counseling, they would be having PTSD counseling, um, trauma, because of, you know, fear of separation from their families, or not fear, but actual separation of their families. Yeah. We had a, a, a case a few years ago of a man from Honduras who was here on labor trafficking. He was a victim of fraud because of labor trafficking. They worked with him for two years to try and get him to talk to Homeland Security so he could get a trafficking visa. But he was afraid to do that because the traffickers knew his family back in Honduras and he was afraid they would target his family. Well, we lost track of him and then years later, he contacted us because his 13-year-old son traveled from Honduras by himself to the U.S.-Mexico border because he wanted to see his dad. And somehow his son was able to get across the border. Wow. Wow. And a, so a few years later, Selvin came into our office with his son. Oh, uh, And Selvin is still here undocumented. And so he still runs the risk of being deported. But he was so proud that his son was here. And his son went through all kinds of hell to get here. But he went to school. He was so proud to be with his father. So it's one thing to hear about these things theoretically. It's another thing to look people face-to-face in the eyes, see their children, see them, see the fear in their eyes, know their stories of what they've been through. Um, It's a whole different ballgame when you know people personally affected by these horrible policies. So these policies hurt and they hurt people badly, and they hurt our society if we keep having horrible policies like this. And it's basic human rights. We talk about human rights in other countries. Well, what about human rights in our country? Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you want to go over the list of speakers? Oh, um, for, um, well, for the rally, we have um, Unite Here. People from Unite Here are going to be speaking. That's a, a union that has a lot of Disney workers, and a lot of their workers are immigrants. Um, we have a Florida Immigrant Coalition, um, and uh, um, uh, Marlene is going to speak about climate justice and climate migration. Um, we have Mi Familia Vota, which is a Hispanic organization that works on voting rights. Of course, the Farm Worker Association. We have Hope Community Center. 
um, which is our sister organization that does a lot with um, immigrant youth. Um, we have um, Florida Rising, which is um, a statewide organization that works on housing and other kinds of progressive issues. And we have Florida Legal Services. Um, we have a Haitian woman who is doing a medical legal partnership work through a fellowship. And, um, but we have also lots, and IATSE, which is also a union that uh, does stagehands union, and they're going to be doing the sound for us at the event. Well, that's wonderful. We that's wonderful. We have organizations that are going to be endorsing the event. That's wonderful. Uh, Jeannie, thank you so much for your time. You must be exhausted. I know the kind of days you put in. Uh, you, you know, I, I would say something similar like you're doing God's work, you're doing the work of humanity, but you know that. I just have to say thank you, my dear friend. Uh, God bless you for the work that you do. Thank you, and thank you for keeping it going, and thank you for bringing all these important news stories and um, and and these speakers to your show and getting the word out to the public. So thank you very, very much because media is where it's at. We need good progressive media. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. You take care of yourself, please. You too. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So that was our Rick's interview, Rick Spizak's interview with uh, Jeannie Economos from the Farm Workers Association. Again, they touched on several different uh, subjects, including the, you know, environmental racism and general racism. So now I'm going to have a little, I guess, auditory bombardment here, a little, I wouldn't call it music, getting ready for the next story. Okay, so now we're on to our second story of the day. And this one is a little longer. Um, in case some of you don't know who Stephen Donzinger is, um, I'm going to fill in the blanks a little bit, all right? Uh, as you know, that right now we are tipping near global climate disaster. Uh, the International Panel on Climate Change through the UN knows the IPCC their last report they issued was clear about this prognosis. We have a few years and then we will be at a point where we can't really do much to reverse disaster. And, you know, the report involved thousands of climate scientists from around the world. And one of the things they came up with was that, yes, the fossil fuel industry is the leading cause of an impending climate change disaster. There's no guesswork here. All right, it was a slam dunk. So Stephen Donzinger, you could argue that he was not just an environmental attorney, but a human rights attorney. And he took on the case for indigenous peoples of the Ecuadorian Amazon. And basically he took on Chevron. And initially, basically what happened was Texaco was the first fossil fuel company there, all right? And Texaco basically, they, they dealt with things there very irresponsibly. They dumped toxics into the water and into the air. And so basically the Ecuadorian Amazon 
parts of it are so polluted, cancer rates have skyrocketed. And so these indigenous peoples found an attorney. They found Stephen Donzinger. Donzinger took them to court. At that time, by the time this went to court, um, basically Texaco had sold their their holdings to the, a bigger company, namely Chevron. And, of course, when a bigger company buys you out, they also accept those liabilities as well unless there's a separate deal. And so it was Stephen Donziger representing the people of the Ecuadorian Amazon against this multinational conglomerate Chevron. Donziger won. Really, this guy must have been one hell of an attorney. He won against their art. Now, he had a few other, you know, there, there were other groups that worked with Donziger, and Donziger was the lead attorney with these other attorneys, and they won a $9.5 billion settlement, settlement with a B. And this was against Chevron for, you know, what we put in the advert, for premeditated pollution of the Amazon rainforest. Uh, and, you know, why would Chevron and other companies like that do this? Because they don't want to pay for proper mitigation of toxics. That's why. Pure greed. No other reason. And so Chevron, after they lost, used their army of corporate attorneys to destroy Donziger while refusing to pay a cent. And make no mistake about it, this case was a terrible miscarriage of justice. Uh, Stephen Donziger wound up being disbarred, so he lost his license to practice law. And he faced not only civil prosecution, but a, a pardon the phrase, trumped up criminal prosecution for criminal contempt of court. He served, I think it was a few months in federal prison, and then when COVID hit, they released him to home, uh, home detention. So he was released this week. There's a story in Common Dreams written by Jake Johnson, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> after 993 days of what has been called completely unjust detention, according to Amnesty International, Steven Donziger was free. And that was as of April 25th, so it happened this week. Uh, a spokesperson for, for Amnesty International said he never should have been detained for even one day. As this been clear, the whole process against him has been in retaliation for his human rights work that exposed corporate wrongdoings, end quote. So let's get into the story by Jake Johnson. So Donziger walked free, okay? This fight between him and Chevron, Donziger and Chevron, has been going on for decades. Let that sink in for a minute, all right? And Chevron used their enormous resources, their armies of corporate lawyers, and according to Lever News, a campaign to destroy Stephen Donziger. And, and more than that, I would say this really is a litmus test uh, to serve as a warning against any human rights attorney or law firm, if you get in the corporate's way, this too will happen to you. And this case is a perfect example of what I, what I term judicial capture. And what has been captured is that the, the judiciary here in the United States, too many of these judges, it is leaking out that they are not about being impartial and following what the law says, that these too many of these judges, I'm just going to say it, are corrupt, period. So, and we have corporations that are abusing the U.S. justice system to 
not only intimidate anyone who would stand in their way, but to silence them as well. This goes far beyond what we talked about in earlier shows about the slap suits. The slap suits are civil lawsuits to, you know, basically silence groups and people because defend yourself would basically bankrupt you. This case with Steven Donzinger involved both criminal and civil prosecution. And it's attracted international attention. So, again, Amnesty sent, you know, a a statement. Um, Daniel Jaloy, Senior Policy Advisor at Amnesty International, issued a statement Monday, which was the day Donziger was released, to say, quote, we are relieved that Stephen Donziger will finally recover his freedom after almost 1,000 days of arbitrary detention, which included 45 days in prison and over 900 days under house arrest. He should never have been detained for even one day. As it has been clear, the whole process against him has been retaliation for its human rights work that exposed corporate wrongdoing. Corporations must not be allowed to continue abusing the U.S. justice system to silence and intimidate human rights defenders or anyone else exposing their wrongdoing. So let's let's do a little background. I know I kind of threw this at at you guys, Um, but I've been following this case for a while, and it, it makes my blood boil. So this legal battle all the way back to 1993. I'm serious. And this is as documented by The Intercept. Uh, Stephen Donziger and some other attorneys um, basically represented tens of thousands of farmers and other indigenous people who live near the Ecuadorian Amazon. And they all filed this class action lawsuit against Texaco, because Texaco originally owned all this, alleging, quote, that the company contaminated the rainforest with its oil drilling operations, end quote. So then Chevron, so this started in 93, and then in 01, Chevron bought Texaco. They also apparently bought their legal liabilities. And Chevron denied all the allegations. Now, there is a wonderful journalist that you can listen to on a podcast and also read his, his wonderful work named Greg Pallast. And Greg has been following and dogging Chevron for decades himself. Wonderful investigative journalism. You need to check it out. So Chevron denied the allegations. And then in 2011, they went to court in Ecuador. And um, Chevron lost. Okay. And they were ordered by the Ecuadorian court to pay $9.5 billion in a settlement. And then, of course, Chevron appealed it. And Ecuador's Supreme Court also upheld the ruling in favor of the indigenous peoples against Chevron and ordered them to pay. So what did Chevron do? Chevron made these incredibly ridiculous and specious claims that the settlement quote, was the result of fraudulent strategies on the part of Donziger. Now, last time I checked, if you make an accusation in court, whether you're an attorney or a witness, you better have some evidence. Otherwise, the judge is required to toss those allegations. Well, that didn't happen. Since Chevron claimed the settlement was fraudulently obtained, What did Chevron do? Well, according to opendemocracy.net, first they withdrew all their assets from Ecuador. That's after, after they polluted it. 
and I mean dump toxins and damage the people there and their children. Then they refused to pay the settlement. And then they began a campaign to destroy Stephen Donziger. They, they uh, singled him out. Okay? So they took Donziger to court in 2014. All right? First, they sued Donziger in uh, New York City. And, you know, Donziger was quoted as saying, quote, my prosecutor has financial links to Chevron. My judge has financial links to Chevron. The charging judge has investments in Chevron, because this involves two judges. Okay, the first judge was a man named Louis Kaplan, federal judge. And then the second judge was another federal judge, judge named Loretta Prescott. Prescott, excuse me. So 2014 happened, and it's in New York City, and federal judge Lewis Kaplan, again, he has ties to Chevron, according to AmazonWatch.org. He ruled that Donzinger was, quote, guilty of a, quote, pattern of racketeering activity. In other words, he, the judge, Judge Kaplan, accused Stephen Donzinger of racketeering with Zero evidence other than this one, this one witness that later recanted their testimony. Of course, Donziger denied the charges. So U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan, um, his decision was based on testimony from this one single witness who later admitted to lying. Okay, so let's back this up a little bit here. Stephen Donziger, along with some other attorneys, filed a class action suit. It initially was against Texaco. Texaco sold their assets to Chevron. This, this trial, this class action suit, took place in Ecuador. The environmentalists, including Donziger, won. Chevron lost. Chevron was ordered to pay $9.5 billion to this class action suit. That's a civil lawsuit. It's not a criminal suit. Chevron appealed in Ecuador because that's where it took place. And the, you know, the plaintiffs were Ecuadorians. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Ecuador. And the Supreme Court, Ecuador Supreme Court said, sorry, Chevron, you were wrong. You lost. Pay up. Donziger and these indigenous people are right. So then what happened was, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself a lot. Chevron then sued um, Donziger, and they claimed that <clears throat> the win that Donziger had in Ecuador was based on some sort of fraud on Donziger's part. Then Chevron took all their assets out of Ecuador. So you know that old saying, you broke it, you bought it? Well, not according to Chevron. They broke the Amazon. They dumped lethal toxics. And then they said, too bad, so sad, and they left. And then they singled Donziger out and attacked him. They sued him in New York City. 2014, Judge Kaplan had the case. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Judge Lewis Kaplan has proven ties to Chevron. And what did Kaplan do? He ruled that Donziger was guilty of, quote, a pattern of racketeering activity. Accused him of violating the Federal RICO Act. 
That's a federal criminal charge. How in the world did this go from a civil lawsuit to a criminal, a federal criminal lawsuit against one individual? Think about that for a minute. And what did let Kaplan, Judge Kaplan, base that judgment on? The testimony of a single witness. Okay, a single witness who later admitted to lying, according to Vice.com. Let that sink in. In fact, you'll find out later in this report that same witness had been had accepted bribes, significant bribes from Chevron to purchase this fraudulent testimony. So it wasn't Donziger that committed fraud, it was Chevron. And their one witness who ironically was a lower level Ecuadorian judge. So then Judge Kaplan is demanding Stephen Donziger's cell phone and computer. Okay? Donziger refused. He, he claims attorney-client privilege, which makes perfect sense. And why did Judge Kaplan order Stephen Donziger to hand over his cell phone and computer? Why? Because Chevron demanded it. Okay? Donziger continued to argue the devices contained sensitive client information and pro probably clients that weren't anywhere con any way connected to this case. Kaplan got mad and... Frankly, it looks like Kaplan was taking orders from Chevron. That's my opinion. He issued, then Judge Kaplan issued criminal charges against Donziger. He issued six counts of criminal contempt against Stephen Donziger because Donziger was basically protecting his clients, and attorney-client privilege is one of the things attorneys can claim. So basically, Stephen Donziger was charged with six counts of criminal contempt by Judge Lewis Kaplan for protecting his clients. So Judge Kaplan was attacking an attorney's right to be an attorney, essentially. But it gets worse. So Donziger was placed under house arrest while waiting for trial. You know, where's that thing about innocent until proven guilty? It didn't happen. Did he get bail? <clears throat> no. He was placed under house arrest. But it gets worse. The Southern District of New York in other words, the district attorney in the Southern District of New York refused to um, prosecute this case against Donziger, and that's according to courthousenews.com. They didn't see, they basically said there's no case here. So what did Judge Kaplan do? Did he listen to the district attorney? No. Judge Kaplan then appointed a private law firm that had direct connections to Chevron to push as special prosecutors against Donziger. And this is according to Reuters, hardly a flaming liberal source. Okay. So now it gets deeper. So now this case against Donziger goes to another U.S. judge, U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska. Now, Judge Preska, she has been previously a member of the Federalist Society, which, again, that's her right. She wants to be a member of the Federal Society before she was a judge. She can be a member. <coughs> Excuse me. But you have to acknowledge one thing. One of the big funders to the Federal Society, guess who? Chevron. Yes. So Donziger, that explains this quote that Donziger issued. He said, quote, so my prosecutor has financial links to Chevron. My judge has financial links to Chevron, 
the charging judge, Judge Kaplan, has investments in Chevron, and they're denying me jury. And this was according to what Don Bigger said in an interview for JacobinMag.com last year, okay, in 2021. So not only were these, pardon the pun, trumped-up charges, these bogus charges hurled at Stephen Donziger, but then two judges denied him the right to a jury trial, even though he is being charged with criminal charges, federal criminal charges. Now, again, this show me where in the Constitution a judge can legitimately do that. That's pure nonsense. So, basically, Judge Preska denied Stephen Donziger the right to a jury trial, and then Judge Loretta Prescott automatically found Stephen Donziger guilty on all six counts of criminal contempt of court. Okay? And that is as documented by commondreams.com. Okay? I'm inside, but excuse me. Um, and, of course, a lot of legal experts slammed uh, Judge Preska's decision as, quote, an obvious travesty of justice, which it is. Then Judge Preska sentenced Donziger to six months in federal prison. Think about that for a minute. He was sentenced to six months in federal prison for criminal contempt. He's still going to face, he still was going to face uh, RICO charges, carry much longer sentences. And his, because he won a case, Okay. That was the RICO. The, the, he's charged with racketeering because he won a case and the corporation didn't like it. Then he was charged with criminal contempt of court because as a good attorney, he refused to hand over his cell phone and his computer to the opposition attorneys. Period. Do Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska not understand the rules of evidence which are taught in the first semester of law school? It, she also mentioned, too, that Judge Preska, for instance, uh, she's not this ultra-conservative. She is a corporatist, though, but um, she's been feted by feminist groups such as, for instance, um, Emily Bliss. So, once again, the hypocrisy here is enormous. So, Donziger was then um, sentenced to, in October, according to Reuters, to six months of federal prison, um, he was in federal prison from October until December, and then he was transferred back to house arrest uh, through this COVID-related early release program. And again, that's just documented by Reuters.com. Now, keep in mind, this whole story, I'm just giving the background. Donziger spent over two years overall, 993 days in detention between federal prison and home detention before any trial, okay? He didn't receive a trial from Judge Prescott. He was denied the right to a jury trial, and then she automatically accepted the testimony that Judge Kaplan sent her, and she automatically sentenced him. That's it. And if anyone should have been disbarred, it should have been Judge Kaplan and Judge Prescott, not Stephen Donzinger. Of course, human rights and environmental organizations have been, you know, begging President Biden to pardon Donzinger. Uh, and that's, again, according to Common Dreams, they slammed his prosecution as, quote, 
retaliation for his work in defense of the rights of indigenous peoples in Ecuador who were victims of Chevron Corporation's oil dumping, end quote. And, and you got to remember, when they dumped oil like this, all sorts of mysterious illnesses, including huge rates of cancer, skyrocketed, including among children. Okay. So this is, uh, again, Joloy of Amnesty International said this past Monday that, yes, Danziger is free from detention, but, quote, the end of this sentence does not mean the end of the injustices Stephen has faced. Joloy went on to say, quote, the U.S. government must fully implement the decision of the U.N. Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, including launching an impartial and independent investigation into the circumstances that led to Stephen's arbitrary detention to prevent something like this from happening again, end quote. So now we're going to go a little deeper into the details of this case. Because, you know, we mentioned that, you know, he, Don Zinger was uh, slandered by a single witness who later recanted their testimony. So this is a, a, a piece written by, this, this piece that I'm going to read now, or read from, uh, was published a, about a little over a year ago, April 28, 2021. It was written by Walker Bragman for Lever News. And the headline is very accurate. It's titled, Chevron's Prisoner. And then it goes on to say, Stephen Donziger was won one of the largest oil company lawsuits in history and in response lost everything. So, you know, apparently Bregman talked to Donziger over the phone. And, um, you know, he said, excuse me, Donziger said, quote, it's increasingly challenging being on home detention for almost two years without a trial on a misdemeanor just to come to the realization that the system is functioning on behalf of Chevron and not on the behalf of justice, end quote. Again, this was a year ago. You know, and when Donziger says he was detained without an actual trial, you know, you can almost hear Judge Loretta Preska claim, no, he had his trial, and she sent him to prison. Except that Stephen Donziger had a right to a trial by jury. Judge Preska forbade that. And then she automatically sentenced him. That is not a trial. Not by any stretch of the imagination. That is what they used to call a kangaroo court, a court of star chamber. And like I said, Stephen Donziger was also disbarred. If anyone should have been disbarred, it's Judge Loretta Preska and Judge Kaplan, not Stephen Donziger. So once again, um, according to this older article, let's talk about some of the details. We're going a little more depth on this kangaroo court prosecution that was authorized by federal judges Lewis Kaplan and federal judge Loretta Preska. So one of the quotes is, quote, Chevron is prosecuting me via its own law firm. And that's true. So Donziger, again, to encapsulate, he's a human rights attorney. He represented um, these indigenous peoples. They were it was a community of color in Ecuador. They sued, they first sued Texaco for rainforest pollution in the region. And then Chevron got into the act because Chevron bought Texaco. So then, and again, this started back in 1993. Hard to imagine this took so long. Then in 2011, Donziger finally won an award for his clients in this class action suit. 
initially the judgment wasn't 9.5 billion; it was 18 billion, and that's according to Reuters. Okay, but then as is the case with a lot of class action suits, the defendant went back to court and whittled and, and got and appealed the judgment and got the 18 billion dollar uh, award whittled down to 9.5 billion. The $9.5 billion award was upheld in three Ecuadorian courts, because that's where the crime occurred. Then Chevron took all their stuff, they took all their assets and their operation and left the country. And why did Chevron leave the country? To avoid paying damages. Then Chevron, as I said before, countersued Donzinger in the United States, but Instead of countersuing him in a civil lawsuit, they countersued criminally under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization, which we know is the RICO Act. Let that sink in. First of all, corporate attorneys have, as far as I know, and I'm going to double check because I could be wrong, as far as I know, corporate attorneys don't have the right to issue criminal charges. That is to come from actual prosecutors, from, you know, an actual district attorney. But they got away with it. They got Judge Lewis Kaplan, who is a friend of Chevron. And guess what? Lewis Kaplan, before he was a federal U.S. District Court judge for the Southern District of New York, guess what good old Lewis did for a living before he was a federal judge. He was a corporate lawyer. And he was assigned to the case. First thing Kaplan did, he issued uh, Chevron a temporary restraining order against the judgment from Ecuador. Okay? Now, that temporary restraining order was also improper because it didn't just... um, stop Chevron, it, it, it didn't just prevent um, the winners, the Ecuadorian people from gaining, from course, okay, sorry folks, having a little bit of a disfluent moment here. Let me catch my breath here. So Kaplan issued Chevron a temporary restraining order against the judgment that demanded that, you know, Chevron pay up. That temporary restraining order did more than just put like a halt or a timeout on the case. It actually blocked enforcement of this of this judgment anywhere in the world. Again, that TRO, the temporary restraining order, probably needs to be looked into also what were the actual um, conditions of the TRO. Did Judge Kaplan, and I'm not saying he did, I'm asking the question, did Judge Kaplan write an improper TRO? Legitimate question. Then Donziger was denied the right to a jury trial. Again, unless a judge has a legitimate reason, like maybe public safety or something, no judge has the right to deny the right to a jury trial. It's a constitutional right. You have a right to a jury of your peers. But that was thrown out. So the non-jury trial, the non-jury criminal trial of Stephen Donzinger, Chevron brought in Ecuadorian Judge Elbel, 
excuse me, Alberto Guerra. Now, Judge Guerra is the judge who presided over the case against Chevron when it was first filed by Don Ziger and his people. Judge Guerra testified Don Ziger and his team bribed him to ghostwrite the multi-billion dollar judgment against Chevron for presiding judge Nicholas Zambrano. I'm reading straight from this. And that is, as again, documented by Reuters. Judge Guerra also claimed that Judge Zambrano had also been bribed and that Judge Zambrano, Zambrano Guerra also claimed that Judge Zambrano had also been bribed and that Zambrano had also offered Guerra a percentage of his, quote, take. Again, this is like a direct quote from the article. Finally, Guerra recanted his testimony. It was during an international arbitration, and Guerra finally admitted that he had accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars from Chevron, according to courthousenews.com, and then he recanted some details of his testimony, according to vice.com. Now, Judge Guerra is the only evidence, the only witness that Chevron had. That's it. The entire case hinged on that and nothing else. And if I find more, I'll let you guys know. So this happened during this international arbitration. So you would think, okay, the arbitration tribunal was realized, wow, this witness, this Ecuadorian judge admitted, not only admitted that he perjured himself in court, but also admitted to accepting bribes. And he admitted to offering a bribe to the second judge, the second Ecuadorian judge. The tribunal was the very least say, we're going to put a timeout on this case and send it back to court. That didn't happen. The international tribunal still said that the multi-billion dollar judgment against Chevron was still tainted, was still product of some fraudulent conspiracy, and that was according to Reuters once again. And that the claims against the oil giant had been settled, okay, and released by the Ecuadorian government many years earlier. But see, the problem is this, and this is where the, the tribunal made a mistake as I read this. Maybe the Ecuadorian government did settle things later, or earlier rather. But this was a separate class action suit. It was private. It wasn't from the Ecuadorian government. And the tribunal said this, and they, I guess they figured no one would read that carefully, but that's also improper. And frankly, the arbitrators for that uh, arbitration panel should be hauled into court themselves. Okay? So we get to the first judge in the American case, Judge Kaplan, ties the oil company. Ironically, he was a Clinton, Bill Clinton appointee, but he had multiple investments in funds with Chevron Holdings, according to AmazonWatch.org. Judge Kaplan had also before suggested in deposition hearings, quote, from a separate but related case that Chevron could have grounds to file a racketeering suit against Donzinger, end quote, according to AmazonWatch.org. Okay? Again, if Judge Kaplan, the first judge in the American trial, had been so prejudiced as to suggest in deposition hearings in a separate case, 
that Chevron could have grounds to file a racketeering charge against Donzinger, which again is a criminal charge, not civil. That suggests that Judge Kaplan should have recused himself from this case at the very least, and he did it. Once again, RICO charges are criminal charges. Private attorneys do not have the right to file criminal charges. They can file the complaint, a criminal complaint, and then it's up to a district attorney to decide whether or not they want to prosecute. And in this case against Stephen Donzinger, the DA in New York refused to file charges. They saw no evidence. Okay. But there's more. During the racketeering proceedings, which again, Judge Kaplan should have recused himself because he made prejudicial statements against Donzinger in a separate case. Kaplan described the oil giant as, quote, a company of considerable importance to our economy that employs thousands all over the world that supplies a group of commodities, gasoline, heating oil, other fuels, and lubricants on which every one of us depends every single day. And that's as documented by the Chevron Pit com. Well, what Kaplan said may have been, you know, yeah, we rely on that stuff. But just because we rely on that doesn't mean that Chevron should be allowed to get away with crimes against the planet, with crimes against humanity. You know, he's comparing apples and oranges. Then Judge Kaplan relied, for the most part, on Judge Guerra's testimony, which again, we found out later, had constituted perjury, and he had, Judge Guerra had accepted bribes. He admitted it. And Kaplan ruled against Donzinger in March of 2014. Uh, Judge Kaplan uh, alleged that there was this vast conspiracy and that Donzinger had won this judgment against Chevron through what he called, quote, corrupt means, end quote. Then there was a federal appeals court, okay, so Donziger appealed. So what did the federal appeals court say? They upheld Kaplan's ruling. Yeah, there's corruption going on, but it's not coming from Donziger. It's coming from these, excuse my language, goddamn federal judges. Then Donziger was disbarred from practicing law in New York, and that's just documented again by Reuters. Now, after this criminal case against Donziger played out, Again, this, case, this criminal case was based on zero evidence other than the now recanted testimony of an Ecuadorian judge that admitted he perjured himself, that admitted he had accepted a bribe from Chevron, and that admitted he tried to bribe another judge. So after all that, you think, okay, Chevron got what they wanted, right? No, no, no. They wanted to destroy Stephen Donziger and send a clear message to all other attorneys. Make no mistake about it. There was racketeering going on in this case, and the racketeering came from Chevron, came from the corporate offices of Chevron, and, yes, came from the courthouses of Judge Lewis Kaplan and Judge Loretta Fresca. So what did Chevron do? After they saw to it, he was disbarred and everything else, then... This big multinational conglomerate sued, civilly sued, um, Stephen Donzinger for more than $800,000 in court costs. I'm not kidding. It was at that point 
that Chevron's lawyers demanded um, that Stephen Donzinger hand over his personal computer and cell phone. And Chevron's attorneys claimed that they needed these devices. It was necessary to enforce the monetary judgment against Donzinger. Now, listen to that for a minute, okay? They didn't need Donzinger's cell phone or his computer to enforce um, the monetary judgment against Donziger. They just, all they do is file papers with the bank. Okay? So I, could it be they wanted Donziger's cell phone and his computer to go after other people that were involved in standing up to Chevron and other fossil fuel giants that are destroying this planet? Just a question. So, of course, Donziger appealed, and he refused to turn over his electronics because he, as an attorney, said, look, I'm handing over privileged materials. You know, it could be other clients, and he was right. This is something all attorneys do. There's not a problem here. Okay? So what did Judge Kaplan do? He held Donziger in civil and then civil contempt and then criminal contempt of court. And then he slapped him down with, quote, the largest state sanction in the history of New York courts. That's according to Donziger's own um, website, DonzigerLaw.com, press release. Now, while all this is going on, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, this is part of the Attorney General, okay, refused to prosecute the case. Now, they said a lack of resources, according to this article on Lever Press. I saw other articles where the U.S. Attorney's Office refused to prosecute Donzinger because there wasn't a case against him. There's no criminality here. So you would think, okay, this is the U.S. Attorney's Office. It would stop, right? Wrong. Judge Kaplan, according to this article, took the unusual step, end quote, according to prospect.org. What they did was Judge Kaplan turned over the contempt case to a corporate law firm, a private corporate law firm um, known, by, known as, um, okay, so Kaplan, t- sorry, having another disfluent episode. Let me take a breath here. So all this happened then in 2019. You see how long this is taking? It's absurd. And meanwhile, Donziger can't work. So Donziger lost in court in 2014. Five years later, in 2019, he still can't work, right? Kaplan, Judge Kaplan, um, since he couldn't get the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York to prosecute the case because, again, the U.S. Attorney said there's no case here, there's no criminality. So what did Judge Kaplan do to ensure that Chevron would get what they wanted? Yes, I'm making the accusation. He handed the contempt case over to this big corporate law firm uh, by the name of Seward and Kissel, LLP, and they were assigned to be special prosecutors. Then Judge Kaplan selected one of his colleagues, Judge Loretta Prescott, to hear the criminal case. Once again, the U.S. Attorney's Office was totally locked out. Judge Kaplan assigned special prosecutors from a corporate law firm Seward and Cassell, and then he selected the judge, Judge Federal Judge Loretta Prescott, to hear the criminal case. Okay, so Don Ziegler's 
rights as a criminal defendant have been violated so many times it's uncountable now. That's bad enough, but it gets worse still. Okay, part of the proceedings in 2019, Judge Preska sentenced Donziger to ongoing home confinement, even though he hadn't had his day in court, really. And as for um, the firm of Stewart and Kissel, can you guess? Yeah, they had ties to Chevron. In fact, the corporate law firm of Stewart and Kissel represented Chevron as recently as 2018, according to jacobinmag.com. Now, this is a fact that the prosecution that the lawyers from Stewart and Kissel, who were acting as special prosecutors, they, did, they didn't disclose this. This went on for seven months after they had been selected. They withheld this very relevant fact that, they, that these attorneys, let me back up again, the attorneys that were assigned as special prosecutors belonged, worked for the law firm of Stewart and Kissel. Stewart and Kissel is a corporate law firm. That corporate law firm represented Chevron as recently as 2018, again, according to Jacobin JacobinMag.com. The special prosecutors that were working for Stewart and Kissel omitted this conflict. They didn't disclose this potential conflict of interest, and this went on for seven months after they had been selected. Okay, this is a big no-no. Well, it sounds like there's some attorneys at Seward and Kissel that probably need at least to be, um, uh, what, uh, disciplined, professionally disciplined, if not disbarred themselves. And then, of course, Judge Preska was a member of the Conservative Federalist Society, and Federalist Society is beholden to Chevron because they are a gold circle supporting firm. And that was as documented in the pamphlet for their 2017 annual lawyers convention. Uh, additionally, Chevron donated at least 50000 to the Federal Society in 2015 as well, according to Document Cloud. So, once again, Donzinger and his allies, this, there's so many conflicts of interest. There, there was no way Stephen Donzinger was ever going to get a fair trial. In fact, According to this piece, two of the three attorneys that were special prosecutors left Stewart and Kissel. So to quote, to quote Donzinger, he said, quote, Chevron is prosecuting me via its own law firm. I don't think that's ever happened before in our country's history, and it should be terrifying to anybody who believes in the rule of law or does human rights or environmental justice work, end quote. Now, this article here, the prosecuting attorneys were at that point, of, at the time uh, Donziger issued the statement, um, there were special prosecutors from two firms, Glavin, PLLC, and Seward and Cassell. Neither group responded to requests for comment. Now, there's been a lot of appeals here. The International Association of Democratic Lawyers and the National Lawyers Guild filed a motion demanding dismissal of the charges against Donziger. Uh, and the grounds is that moving forward uh, could establish a precedent, quote, for judges to be able to engage in judicial harassment and misconduct and appoint private prosecutors that are shielded from revealing a conflict of interest, end quote. And that's very damning right there. 
So Chevron's been able to block enforcement, also the Ecuador judgment globally, and that is, a, as I said, said before, and that's a perfect example of what I call judicial capture, okay? Um, courts in Brazil, Argentina, and Canada have all ruled against enforcement. They cited jurisdictional grounds, um, and each, each nation, Brazil, Argentina, and Canada, each, um, stated that their country Chevron subsidiary was, quote, a distinct and separate legal entity from the Chevron Corporation, end quote. So these courts in Brazil, Argentina, and Canada, they had to issue that statement because they know what they're doing is illegitimate. This is an instance where they thought they were applying the technical letter of the law, but they knew they were breaking the spirit. You know, and it's an asinine statement. You know, they're saying that their Chevron subsidiaries in each each nation are distinct and separate from the Chevron Corporation. How? Because why? Because they built a Chinese wall. They made this this fictional separation. I mean, that's like claiming you're just a little bit pregnant. There's no such thing. And again, uh, it reminds me of. Uh, you know, the whole idea of the spirit of the law, okay? So Donzinger rightfully calls this whole mess corporatocracy, and it is. Um, he told the Daily Poster a year ago, quote, it's pretty clear that I'm going to be convicted no matter what the evidence. Um, and again, this is a piece from, oh, excuse me, from uh, Lever News a year ago. House progressives did send a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. They requested a review of Donziger's case. Um, we'll see here. And God bless them. They include my representative, Corey Bush, uh, the six progressive House lawmakers that stood up for actual rule of law, uh, Representative Alexandria, excuse me, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Cory Bush, Representative Jamal Bowman, Representative Jim McGovern, Representative Jamie Raskin, and Representative T Rashida Tlaib. Okay? And um, you can go to mcgovern.house.gov to view the letter. And this is really, that letter is the latest in a series of appeals to DOJ. Um, Donziger's own legal team sent another letter to Merrick Garland and they requested that Garland's office remove the case from the private prosecutors as well as drop the charges. Now, as far as I know, that didn't happen, and Merrick Garland should hang his head in shame. Uh, I can understand if, if DOJ is acting as impartial. Maybe they wanted to see the whole thing play out and not necessarily drop the charges, but they could have removed the case from private prosecutors, and they should have. But instead, Merrick Garland's office did nothing. Okay? Uh, February 13th, again of last year, 21, um, multiple international human rights and environmental organizations, which included Amnesty International and Amazon Watch, also sent a letter to Merrick Garland uh, demanding that the DOJ review the case. They also called out what they termed, quote, a state of affairs widely viewed by the international human rights and environmental community as one of the most serious ongoing human rights abuses 
for which the United States has yet to answer, end quote. This is all back in 21, because Don Zinger's been released, but he wasn't declared innocent. Um, that same month, a year ago, hundreds of law students, hundreds of law students across the United States from 52 different law schools um, announced, according to MakeChevronCleanup.com, a recruiting boycott of Seward and Kissel because they acted as private prosecutors of Donzinger, even though they had clear and proven conflicts of interest that should have precluded them from being acting as prosecutors. So this goes on, you know, Donziger was attacked by National Review. Um, Jack Fowler, who's the vice president of this conservative piece of garbage, you know, he wrote some attacks against Donziger. Uh, keep in mind, National Review is funded by Chevron, okay? Oh, so, you know, once again, um, you know, some, but not all of the early National Review stories did include a disclosure that, quote, Chevron advertises the National Review and has donated to the National Review Institute. That's according to their website. But none of the articles about Donziger included a disclosure about the outlet Chevron ties since 2017. Even though Chevron was a gold sponsor of the National Review Institute's Quote, William F. Buckley Prize Dinner in 2017 and 2019. Keep in mind, gold level sponsorship for that, they have to, Chevron has to basically write a check for each one $25,000 just to attend the gala. Um, but, you know, once again, that's chump change for, you know, for Chevron. Um, keep in mind, Jack Fowler did not respond for comments. Um, and Donzinger said that Fowler and National Review are some of the only journalists that want to, quote, touch Chevron's crap because, excuse me, quote, they are essentially paid by them, end quote. Um, you know, and so Donzinger, you know, one of the last quotes by Donzinger in this piece from a year ago is, you know, really what's happening because of fossil fuel industries, crimes, especially Chevron's. To quote Donzinger at the time, quote, people are dying of cancer, living exposed to toxic waste all the time, end quote. So that's the background. The fact that this took place in Ecuador, the indigenous peoples I mentioned, it's a community of color. There's the environmental racism component right there. Do you really think Chevron would have done this, say, in Beverly Hills or Bel Air? I don't think so. Again, there's more. Uh, the UN found Donziger's house arrests violates international law. They're appalled. Um, this came from the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights. Um, and once again, it made no difference. It just didn't. So there's more on this, and we're going to be covering it more, but I wanted to give you guys the basics of what's happening here. Uh, you know, it, this sounds like it happened, say, in Russia under Putin or some other, to use Donald Trump's low-level vocabulary, some other shithole nation. Well, in this instance, it turns out that the shithole nation is here in the U.S. and that our judiciary 
has is characterized not just judicial capture, it's it's wholesale corruption. And these judges have to be forced to follow a very strict code of ethics. That's not happening. And it's not just the Supreme Court, it's throughout. So that's our second story. And let it sink in and let it outrage you. Okay. So why did Chevron go to all this trouble? Yes, it was a big a big settlement they would have had to pay out. Well, let's say facts. Chevron's attorneys could have just filed appeal after appeal after appeal and kept it going in court forever. So why did they attack Stephen Donzinger? They attacked him to set an example. Yes, there was racketeering going on, and it came from Chevron, and it came from Chevron's attorneys, including the law firm of Stewart and Kissel. That racketeering, that, that gangsterism also came from the gavel of Judge Lewis Kaplan and Judge Loretta Preska. Make no mistake about it. And this was to set an example so that attorneys would think twice before they really fought for communities of color, for environmental groups, so on and so forth. Make no mistake about it. This is corporate capture. And corporate capture is achieved through judicial capture. This is wholesale corruption. And the case of Stephen Donzinger, that was the warning. He was the sacrificial lamb. Seriously. We'll be talking about it more. So now we're going to move on to... My favorite feature, our Jackass of the Week Award. And I'm going to tell you something. There were so many really um, interesting and, and impressive jackasses out there. It was hard to pick. But one came through loud and clear. And this Jackass of the Week Award goes to someone whose arrogance seemingly knows no bounds, okay, um, to somebody who really doesn't seem to comprehend what democracy is supposed to be about. So this week, our dubious award for Jackass of the Week goes to none other than, drumroll, Elon Musk, the self-appointed guardian of free speech absolutist. Now, well, excuse me, let me have a little tea here, folks. I'm having a little disfluent episode again today. When I heard Elon Musk <coughs> call himself a free speech absolutist, I was drinking some coffee, and it was so asinine, I literally spit out what I was trying to swallow across the room. Seriously. Only someone as arrogant as Elon Musk could make such a stupid, asinine statement. And, and there's enough proof to show that Elon Musk doesn't believe in free speech at all. Um, you know, he's criticized Twitter censorship, so he bought Twitter. But in the past, Musk has threatened to sue bloggers for uh, coverage of his, his uh, business practices, including the fact that he often fires employees for disagreeing with him. Uh, a former employee tweeted, quote, seeing that Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist, unless it involves safety concerns, I am, in my opinion. 
Okay, and this was a piece that uh, was written by Catherine Tangalakis Lippert um, back in March from Business Insider, okay? Um, John Ber Bernal, who's a former Tesla employee, um, was one with that tweet. He was fired after he posted YouTube reviews of Tesla's autopilot functions on his channel, AI Addict. Now, Bernal's video um, only has what they call end user features, but it includes footage of the car's autopilot disengaging, um, which caused, quote, Bernal to take control to avoid dangerous situations, including a possible crash. To quote Bernal, quote, I was fired from Tesla in February with my YouTube being cited as the reason why. Even though my uploads are for my personal vehicle off-company off time or property with software I paid for, end quote. I have a greater concern. There, apparently Musk knew that there was a problem with this autopilot feature on these self-driving cars that could result in a crash. And he wanted to make sure he could keep it secret. That's all. But... It's definitely one example. Fast Company also reported um, that Musk hunted down the identity of a would-be anonymous blogger. This person posted a negative stock analysis of Tesla. So what did, what did Musk do? He contacted the, this person's employer and threatened to sue. Okay, so this, this guy wasn't even an employee of Musk, but he wanted to ruin this man's life because you know, he posted a negative stock analysis. So it's obvious Elon Musk does not believe in free speech. Um, there's this, uh, okay, I lost my plate here. Hold on, folks. Then the poster deactivated his social media account to stop posting. So basically, Musk threatened the slap suit. Slap suits are, they often censor people because just the threat of some big company suing you because they don't like what you have to say even if you can prove it, you know, even if the company has no proof and you have proof of what you're saying is true, to defend yourself in court would still bankrupt you. Okay, so that's what he did. He slapped this guy. That's what is referred to, these, these uh, civil lawsuits that have no merit. All right, they're referred to as slaps. Um, so Montana Skeptic wrote in their farewell uh, post, and this is according to SeekingAlpha.com on Instablog. Quote, I do not know what Mr. Musk's precise complaints are about me. I do not believe he has any valid legal claim, and I would have no trepidation in defending myself vigorously were he to bring any claim. My response to his threats was simply to protect my employer and preserve my employment, end quote. You know, former employees have also been fired, uh, according to Business Insider, for disagreeing with Musk. Uh, according to The Guardian, for reporting racist harassment, and according to Business Insider, for just being in his way. Now, Musk has denied these allegations of rage firing, as they call it, according to Business Insider. Um, you know, once again, uh, if Musk real, uh, you know, it's obvious, Musk is full of, I'm going to say a bad word, bullshit. All right? This is, in my opinion of Elon Musk, is this is an arrogant, spoiled brat who has no consideration for anyone else. It's his way or the highway. 
he came from some relative wealth. And this is the danger that's posed by the billionaire class, period. Make no mistake about it. Nobody should be that wealthy. They pose a danger to all of us. Because with that much wealth comes far too much power. It just does. So for all those reasons, and because, frankly, I'm tired of his little fanboys thinking, they, his fanboys idolizing Musk for, you know, a self-driving car. I don't want a self-driving car. I don't trust it. If you're going to have a self-driving car, at least have the foresight to have a manual override. Otherwise, nah, not happening. For all those reasons, Elon Musk gets our Jackass of the Week Award. Congratulations, Elon, for a job well done. Bravo. Okay, I'm being extremely sarcastic now. Again, Musk brings out the worst in me. All right, so that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be talking more about what happened with Stephen Donziger. This is a case that is incredibly important. Um, and these judges need to be held accountable, both professionally and, yes, criminally. So that's our Sunday show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, tune in next week. Again, Rick Spizak has his poetry hour, and I forgot to ask him where you can actually access it. I will have that next week. If you're more interested, um, again, this show, Progressive News Network on Black Talk Radio, we're every Sunday. Uh, if you miss the initial broadcast, everything is archived, and you can download and listen to it at any time. Um, about once every three or four weeks, I also do the environmental justice reports. And if you're interested in reading any of my journalistic articles, um, you can find those. Uh, there's some old ones at Huffington Post. They used to publish um, quite a bit there until it was sold. But also, right now, my publishing home is BuzzFlash. And I also publish a Nation of Change and Op-Ed News, where I'm featured columnist. And with that, I say, again, happy May Day. May the force of justice be with you. Um, what else can I say? Corporations suck. <laughs> I'm in a silly mood today. Anyway, with that, I say, Good night, good day, actually, it's still daytime. Good day, and oh, God bless us. We certainly need it.